Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I'm delighted to welcome back to the programme the lawyer and university lecturer Adiyinka Mackinday, who joined us last year to discuss his academic article, Can the British State Convict Itself? Adiyinka trained for the law as a barrister, lectures in criminal law and public law at a university in London, and has research interests in intelligence and security matters. He is regularly published online, writing on international relations, politics and military history, and has served as a programme consultant and provided expert commentary for BBC World Service Radio, China Radio International and The Voice of Russia. Adi Yinka, thank you very much for coming back on the programme. Thank you. It's a pleasure, Julian. Well, it's great to have you on for a second time. I'm glad that I didn't put you off the first time. <laughs> um, well, this time we're going to be talking about the subject of one of your recent articles on your blog, and indeed published at globalresearch.ca. Um, and I'll just mention your blog while we're in passing. So that's adiyinkamakinde.blogspot.co.uk. And the article which caught my eye, uh, you called The Pan-Islamic Option, The West's Part in the Creation and Development of Islamist terrorism, uh, which is obviously a, a very disturbing subject, but one that I'm sure the majority of people listening to this program will have some familiarity with, given the coverage of themes like this in the alt media in general, and indeed our previous conversations with Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, and of course James Corbett, who talked to us about the rise of ISIS a couple of years back. Um, and perhaps I should also mention, because I was very pleased with this particular conversation, that we had with Dr. Daniela Ganza on Operation Gladio. So I do recommend people to go and check that out because I'm quite sure that Gladio will come up in this conversation. Um, what struck me about your article, Adiyinka, is it is extremely helpful in pointing out with many, many examples just how long this problem has been going on, uh, the West's cultivation of Islamist terror for various geopolitical purposes. So before we get into the detail of this, perhaps you could tell us what your motivation was for penning an article like this. Well, the immediate motivation was um, discovering a, a meme which had been circulating on social media, declaring Obama, uh, the Muslim president, as being responsible for ISIS and that Hillary Clinton is the godmother of ISIS. And I thought... Um, I doubt very much uh, that Mr. Obama is a Muslim, but I can see it's part of this uh, ideological warfare and cultural warfare in America where people seek to blame each party for the ills uh, associated with the American Republic in contemporary times. But how narrow it is, people should know better given the access to media they have to show that this was a more of a long-standing issue, an overarching issue, which transcends the politician who holds power of the day, may also be a deep state uh, issue. And also, it was really uh, an accumulation of um, writings I had been doing for some time. 
Yes, as you say, there is this polarisation of opinion in the media and in the public as to whether the right is to blame for what's going on in the world today or the left is to blame. And as you mentioned in the article, a lot of debate about the nature of Islam itself. And you write in the article, quote, while each aspect of these debates are important in their own right, the compartmentalised nature of the discourse arguably serves as a useful device which distracts the public from grasping the broader picture. And I'm putting together your mention a moment ago of this phrase, the deep state with the word that you use, device. Do you see this compartmentalization that we see in public discourse on these matters as a deliberate device by the deep state to divert people's attention away from the real nature of these problems? Oh, I think it does um, serve that purpose. And it's possibly, uh, very possibly, uh, an intended device. Certainly, getting migrants coming from the Middle East who are of Islamic persuasion and whether they are assimilable in, in Western society is, is a genuine issue. Maybe a sensitive issue, but it may be a genuine issue. And we can, as we are mature people, separate the discourse of the rank racists from those who are interested in um, the whole economics of the matter, about absorbing large amounts of immigrants or of cultural defense even. But the sad fact is that that aspect of the discourse succeeds in obfuscating the root cause of this wave of migrants on two levels. Whether you're talking about economic migrants who are not affected by wars in the Middle East or those who are affected by the wars in the Middle East. And um, the obfuscation is that the West has been involved in a prolonged policy of using uh, Islamist uh, militias to overthrow governments in the Middle East. So the West is responsible for wrecking whole nations and enabling the displacement of whole groups of people. And the idea is that, well, look, if you in America and the United Kingdom and the rest of Western Europe can just focus on that problem that has uh, been prevailing for some time, you will sort out these issues related to economic migration and other uh, displaced persons seeking refuge in the EU. Stop bombing these lands. Stop overthrowing governments and overturning societies. Therein we will find some measure of a solution. So the two things you want people to be aware of is this long history of Western support for militant Islamic groups and also to question very seriously when we hear of terrorists having been monitored by intelligence services, intelligence agencies, and you helpfully delve back into history in the West um, to find many examples that give us a broader picture of all this, and we'll come to some of that history in a bit. But first, let's pause to consider some of the indications in more recent times of Western support for Islamist terror groups, or at least support by allies of the West. We'll talk about to what extent each one of those applies, direct Western support and or support by allies of the West. Let's talk around that for a moment. Um, you mention quite well-known facts, uh, but I think it's important never to forget these facts, so they're, they're very much worth repeating. Um, remarks by former US Vice President Joe Biden speaking at Harvard in 2014 and the words of General Wesley Clark interviewed on CNN in 2015. Now, in a moment, I'll I'm going to be asking you for your reaction to those comments, but let's just refresh people's memories about those remarks by playing that couple of clips. And um, in fact, 
I'm going to be including quite a few clips during the course of this interview because I think it's a good idea to have the words fresh in our minds while they're being discussed. So the first clip here is of Joe Biden speaking at Harvard on October the 2nd, 2014. And the second clip is of General Wesley Clark, who is a four-star US general and former Supreme Allied Commander Europe of NATO from 1997 to 2000. And uh, he's being interviewed on CNN in February 2015. Okay, so having listened to those again, what do you say they reveal? What do they tell us? Well, I think they tell us that there is a underlying policy which is uh, consistent regardless of who is in power. We will go back into the history in a moment, but in the recent history, say in the in the Cold War era, a policy that's been consistent um, from the time of uh, Bill Clinton, definitely from the George Bush era, and although uh, Barack Obama was uh, pledging to make a break with the past, he essentially continued those policies intact. And we really see those policies still continuing on the Donald Trump. That does suggest there is an agenda that appears to be played out regardless of ideology, regardless of politics. And um, it does also have um, serious investigative journalistic confirmation. It also has serious academic research backing. There was a paper just a few years ago which was turned into a small book called um, National Security and Double Government by an academic from Tufts University called uh, Michael J. Glennon. And he was borrowing the phrase double government from the famous British constitutionalist from the 19th century, Walter Badgett, who spoke about effectively a parallel government, a government of self-interested civil servants and power interests who control an agenda regardless of who is in power. And so what Michael uh, J. Glennon did was to compare Uh, the policies of the Bush administration, Bush Jr., and the Obama administration. And what did he find? No change. And I think that uh, segues into this issue of the West's support and uh, connivance with its allies over the use of Islamist proxies to overthrow governments who do not meet uh, Western approval. Do you think that's something that happens pretty much everywhere? I mean, you know, when you talk about double government or parallel government, of course, I immediately think of things like the continuity of government provisions in the US that people often talk about in relation to 9-11. And of course, Operation Gladio itself here in Europe, which on this program, uh, Daniel Laganza described as a kind of shadow NATO or hidden parallel NATO. Do you think these kinds of power structures are to be found pretty much everywhere? I think it's fair enough to say that there are always power brokers in every society. I think um, Mm. and every government uh, set up um, that word deep state. It's derived from um, a Turkish term, this fusion of military officials and uh, gangsters uh, dictated the way the government ran, marching the way that uh, propaganda due, the pseudo-Masonic lodge operated in, in, in Italy. You go to literally any society. I think um, in in Nigeria, where I originate from, you had something called the Kaduna Mafia, which is the northern elite, Muslim elite, who, through successive military governments and the first civilian government, played a huge part in the decision-making process 
in Nigeria. So I think in most societies, you are likely to find this sort of uh, setup and arrangement. So going back to those remarks we heard a few moments ago, they're out there, they're in the open. We have access to documents that talk about this kind of thing, which we'll talk more about in a few minutes, I'm sure. And we have other things like the Clinton email, some of which, again, point in this kind of direction. You know, this material is out there, and yet you know, very little seems to change, which, which makes me want to ask, um, although I, know, I guess it's, it's more of a statement of frustration than a question, really, what's been done to stop any of this? Well, from what I can tell, very little. Um, if you recall from the issue of Gladio, when it was exposed by um, the late Prime Minister of uh, Italy, Giulio Andriotti, there were only a few parliamentary inquiries in Europe, and then they were only limited. Uh, that's to do with Gladio. So very little there. And in regard to what General Clark has said, despite the overwhelming evidence, press reports, uh, and position papers. Uh, the same can be said for Western Europe, uh, you know, the United States and, and Britain. There's been absolutely no inquiry, but that evidence is there. Wesley Clark, after all, was the man who revealed there was this plan just days after 9-11 when he was revisiting the Pentagon, that uh, there was this plan to take out seven countries in five years. And that was going according to a neoconservative yeah. agenda, you know, the project for the new yeah. American century. Yeah, ab absolutely. Yeah, indeed. I found that uh, really quite eye opening when I first heard that. Um, and I still do. I mean, even though I've heard it many times, I still find it very, very striking. And we've referred to that several times over the years here at TMR. Um, but let's hear it once again, because um, I think it really is important to continue refreshing our memories about these kinds of things. So this is Wesley Clark in conversation with Amy Goodman on Democracy Now!, speaking on March the 2nd, 2007. And we see those position papers actually predicting and we see their fulfillment to this very day in terms of the countries that have been taken out. Iraq, uh, Libya, Sudan, Somalia, Syria, an ongoing quest in which it looks as if they've been frustrated. But all in all situations, all roads lead to Iran. We talk about position papers. Apart from the project for the new American century and these two revelations by uh, General Clark, you also have a paper from 2008 by the Rand Corporation, which is a well-known right-wing think tank long in existence. They produced a paper which was sponsored by the Pentagon, which was about uh, the unfolding of the long war the role of the U.S. Army in this long war that had to be waged in the Middle East, which had to do with preserving American power. And it's very, very specific that uh, one way in which the United States can maintain its power is to give support to these conservative monarchies in the Gulf, you know, Saudi Arabia and the, the Gulf Emirates, for instance, and the other pliable nations, presumably like Egypt and Jordan. You give support to them, but also make use of Salafists, Islamic radicals, and play upon the sectarian divide of Sunni and Shia. 
It actually says that fomenting, I'm not quoting it word for word, but fomenting these problems in these uh, zones where they are, you can pit the Salafist against the Shias, that will keep them busy and will likely prevent terrorist outrages in the West as occurred on September the 11th. And so all the signs are there. There are many others we could make a use of. Those who people who formulated the project for the New American Century papers were also responsible for the document known as the Securing the Realm document uh, that was presented to Benjamin Netanyahu in his first tenure as the Israeli prime minister in uh, the mid-1990s. And they had called for the rolling back of Syria and, uh, you know, cooperation with moderate, quote-unquote, Arab and Muslim states like Jordan, which is effectively a protectorate of Israel, and uh, Turkey to challenge these uh, recalcitrant uh, regimes who are anti-West and anti-Israel. So it's, it's, it's out there, but alas, there's no sort of concerted, conscientious move among the political classes, the society, to actually examine the realities of this policy this overarching policy and challenging it. And something of this Western support for Salafists did come out, did it not, into the mainstream media with the US Defence Intelligence Agency document 2012 that was obtained by Judicial Watch in 2015. And of course, Mike Flynn had been in charge of the DIA during that time, 2012 to 2014. And he was challenged on this document in an interview. But this document does say that the Gulf states, Turkey and the West, desired to have a Salafist state develop in the Middle East, essentially for the purposes of going against the Saud, of going against Syria. Um, and let me quote it here. So section 8C, uh, headed The Effects on Iraq, reads, quote, If the situation unravels, there is the possibility of establishing a declared or undeclared Salafist principality in eastern Syria, Hazakar and Derzor, and this is exactly what the supporting powers to the opposition want in order to isolate the Syrian regime, which is considered the strategic depth of the Shia expansion, Iraq and Iran. And then to define what is meant by the supporting powers, we go to section 7b, um, and they are defined as, quote, on the other hand, opposition forces are trying to control the eastern areas, Hazakar and Herzor, adjacent to the western Iraqi provinces Mosul and Anbar, in addition to neighbouring Turkish borders. Western countries, the Gulf states and Turkey are supporting these efforts. So there we have a definition of what the supporting powers means. Um, so there it is. Um, it seems, though, that Mike Flynn, as head of the DIA at the time, flagged this up, did flag this up to the Obama administration, but they pretty much ignored it. In fact, he was asked in that interview if he thought that they turned a blind eye to his analysis, and he replied... Quote, I don't know whether they turned a blind eye. I think it was a decision, a willful decision. So let's hear that. Uh, it's quite a long excerpt, but I think it's uh, worth persevering with because I think it's very instructive. This is Mike Flynn interviewed on Al Jazeera in 2015 by Mehdi Hassan. So if he's right there, it seems very clear that the Environment Administration was basically saying, leave that alone, just leave that alone. That is policy. Absolutely. Uh, it, it's all out there. And um, I think also that particular document you mentioned, um, the DIA document um, uh, that was discovered through the Freedom of Information Act request by Judicial Watch, it also refers to the methodologies that would be used. 
so we can look into the past and we can actually look to the present. In other words, this whole idea about creating safe zones, anytime you hear that word, no-fly zone, we should be aware that that is a code for protecting Salafist insurgents and enabling their growth to overthrow a government. Because that very technique, which was referred to in that paper, was used under the right to protect doctrine, so it was called, when uh, Gaddafi was overthrown, uh, when that uprising occurred in Benghazi. So the whole idea was that if uh, the Libyan Air Force gets within range, they will be bombed out of their existence. Um, and then we see it again being threatened while the Russians are there in Syria. It's broached. No-fly zone. Aleppo, no-fly zone. Using human suffering, genuine human suffering as a fait accompli, but actually, really, it's part of a devious plan to actually give these uh, Salafists, uh, jihadists, the opportunity to wreak havoc and to overthrow governments not to the liking of the West. Let's also be aware that um, there are interests that coalesce here, uh, but ultimately it's the West that is the deciding influence in things. So the Saudis, the Turks will not act without Western approval, much in the same way as the uh, Israeli government, which has an interest in the destruction of Syria and the balkanization of the Arab world, also tends to rely they they for instance want to they don't want to attack uh, iran independently they want america to help them do that so that coalescence of interest for the saudis it's about extending their realm of influence that fight they had over the years with secular pan-arabism which they effectively won after the uh, six-day war and uh, demise of Gamal Abdel Nasser and now the overthrow of Libya's uh, Gaddafi and uh, the Ba'athist uh, rulership in uh, Iraq. They want to extend their influence and, and also there was the issue of the oil pipeline yes. uh, going through Syria. Um, there's also that interest I had mentioned about Israel being fundamentally predicated on the balkanization of the Arab world, even before its creation. Uh, a necessary condition was the breakup of the Ottoman Empire. And then after the implementation of the Sykes-Picot Agreement, wherein the British and the French divided the Middle East into these uh, artificial nation-states, Israel has sought to have these nations further divided. And then, of course, you have Turkey. The Turks are interested in um, the oil pipeline because obviously they want to be the conduit between the Gulf and Western Europe. So this is the, the pipeline going from Qatar up through Syria into Turkey, Absolutely. rather than the alternative, which is going from Iran through Syria and Absolutely. then servicing Europe through that way. That's mm. right. So the Turks wanted to be involved with that. Assad refused. And also it links into something I believe we're going to discuss uh, later on in terms of the connection between Turkey and its Ottoman predecessor with mm. uh, Germany. And that is to do with Turkish ambitions to establish some form of a pan-Turkic uh, sphere of influence through Central Asia right up to the border with China. 
Yes, indeed, we will come to that when we talk about Germany and the fact that it has had these kinds of relationships uh, in the past. You mentioned Gaddafi and his overthrow in 2011, and that brings up the role of France and even Britain in this action. Um, do you want to say something about that? Absolutely. I think right from the beginning, my understanding was that the action to overthrow Gaddafi was initiated by French intelligence. And I think um, that has been actually, to a certain degree, confirmed. Um, Nicolas Sarkozy was involved um, in that. But also, um, once that decision was made and uh, Britain became involved, America acted as a as a guarantor with its uh, naval power in the Mediterranean, supporting operations. Once that was uh, agreed upon, um, things fell into place, and the overarching issues of overthrowing certain governments uh, then came into play. So the French were involved there, particularly with the use of their air force, but also the British were involved there, and in a way in which is fairly clear-cut compared to some of these other insurgencies we, we will talk about because uh, we know for a fact that uh, Britain uh, sent uh, special forces to train uh, members of the Libyan uh, Islamic fighting group, an Al-Qaeda-affiliated group, and they were embedded within them. They trained them and they directed operations in the battle against the Libyan forces of Colonel Gaddafi. And we have this confirmed by one of the Clinton emails. We not only have that, we have uh, the BBC confirm it. Right. And if you recall, at the beginning of the conflict, near its beginning in the early part of uh, 2011, there was this uh, episode where a certain Libyan uh, insurrectionist militia caught British officials who were being accompanied by special forces. Uh, these were, um, I think, people from the Foreign Office, but obviously MI6, being accompanied by a detachment of uh, SAS troops. And so I think that was a, a shaky introduction, but uh, I think things were sorted out because obviously they were released and um, the subsequent relationship we've just uh, mentioned about British forces, special forces, helping them um, uh, did come about. Yes, going back to France's role in this, the accusation that's often made against Sarkozy seems to be borne out by one of the Clinton emails uh, that France was very worried, or I suppose the elite of France were very worried, that Libya was going to establish a pan-African pan-African currency based on Libyan gold, and that they had billions apparently in gold and, and, and a similar amount in silver, and there were you know various other reasons why France was concerned that uh, Libya would be going its own way. Um, again, let me quote from that email. So this is email number C057855522, which you can read at foyer.state.gov, and I shall put links into the show notes, of course. So this is Sydney Bloom to Hillary Clinton, dated April the 2nd, 2011, and the subject is, quote, France's client and Gaddafi's gold. Okay, and I'm quoting here, according to sensitive information available to these individuals, uh, and I'll just explain that sources with access to one of Gaddafi's sons, so I'm continuing the quote now, according to sensitive information available to these individuals, Gaddafi's government holds 143 tonnes of gold and a similar amount in silver. This gold was accumulated prior to the current rebellion and was intended to be used to establish a pan-African currency based on the Libyan gold dinar. This plan was designed to provide the francophone African countries with an alternative to the French franc, CFA. 
And there's a, a source comment here. According to the knowledgeable individuals, this quantity of gold and silver is valued at more than seven billion dollars. French intelligence officers discovered this plan shortly after the current rebellion began, and this was one of the factors that influenced President Nicolas Sarkozy's decision to commit France to the attack on Libya. According to these individuals, Sarkozy's plans are driven by the following issues: a, a desire to gain a greater share of Libya oil production; b. Increase French influence in North Africa. C. Improve his internal political situation in France. D. Provide the French military with an opportunity to reassert its position in the world. E. Address the concern of his advisers over Gaddafi's long-term plans to supplant France as the dominant power in Francophone Africa. So it does seem that there's very good evidence here that it was in France's interest to push all of this. Oh, absolutely.、Um... Nicolas Sarkozy. It was under his watch that、um, France became reintegrated into NATO's、uh, military structure. General Charles de Gaulle had withdrawn France from NATO's military structure back in the 1960s. He, in fact, he evicted NATO from its Paris headquarters, and NATO was forced to relocate to Brussels. And Nicolas Sarkozy's intention was, as you've stated.、Um, To reinforce France's power, and we see that in the way France intervened in the Ivory Coast, and also in、um, Central West Africa around Mali. But、um, what you mentioned there about the creation of the gold dinar by Colonel Gaddafi、uh, is very, very important because again, that was something that was broached, but there wasn't some sort of official confirmation. Uh, at times, you really feel that definitely was the case, but we we need the evidence, and、uh, you know, due to WikiLeaks and things like that, or admissions by the likes of Ronald Dumas and、uh, Wesley Clark, we do get confirmation. And if we look at that economic angle to the overthrow of Gaddafi,、uh, we can see precedents elsewhere. Syria is an example of a country that wasn't a member of、um, certain Western banking institutions, and also Saddam Hussein.、Uh, one of the reasons he was overthrown、uh, is because he threatened、uh, not to use the dollar in terms of、uh, trading in oil. He wanted to、uh, use the euro,、uh, and so it does seem that those、uh, nations from the so-called developing world or other parts of the world, actually. Any part of the world who do not、uh, toe the line with Washington、uh, are earmarked for destruction. I want to return to Iran. You mentioned Iran a little while ago, and I want to throw into the conversation yet another one of these pieces of documentary evidence because I think it's you know, a very striking piece of information. So this is the Brookings Institution. Publishing their "Which Path to Persia" document from 2009, their so-called analysis paper, which is subtitled "Options for a New American Strategy Towards Iran." An interesting title there. Connect seems to connect with a project from New American Century in my mind,、um, and、um, they have various suggestions as to how regime change could take place in Iran and. They actually go so far as to suggest inspiring an insurgency. This is in chapter seven, and using groups like Mujahideen Ekalk,、um, which at the time were designated as terrorists by the U.S. And here is the Brookings Institution, which is a very well-known think tank, one of the most widely quoted think tanks on Washington D.C., actually suggesting yes, we could actually use these people to conduct terrorist operations 
against Iran. Um, what's your reaction to the fact that we have a document like that, and yet this information is not widely known by people? Um, it's not widely known, presumably, because there can be that fallback position that, oh, well, this is just merely a, a think tank. Hmm. They're putting things out into the open, and it's up to the policymakers uh, and the government, deciders of government to rely on it or not. And, and yet at um, the time, they were designated as terrorists. You'd think that that would be unacceptable, <laughs> You know, that you'd think that that should be unacceptable even to be mentioned by such a supposedly august institution. That's absolutely true. Again, being an august institution, obviously, um, it will not be well known to the general public. But time and again, we see these issues in these documents. Let me put it this way. Um, think about John McCain. These visits, Senator John McCain, you know, the chairman of the uh, armed services, committee mm -hmm. in the Senate, he made visits while that Libyan insurrection was ongoing uh, in the early part of 2011, just a, a month or two after it began. It may not have been widely known to the public at the time, although Colonel Gaddafi, in one of his speeches, which was reported in the West, but discounted as the ravings of a madman, he said, you're supporting Al-Qaeda. But here's John McCain walking through the streets of Benghazi and basically giving soccer to Islamist belligerents, people who subscribe to the ideology of Al-Qaeda, the people said to have perpetrated the 9-11 atrocity, the people who are supposed to be the enemies of the West. You can look at the same thing with his illegal visits, John McCain's visits to Syria, and meeting so-called moderates who later on turn out to be members of hardline Islamist groups. And you also see John McCain fraternizing with people with neo-Nazi sympathies, like the leader of Saboda in uh, Ukraine. So putting the Brookings Institute and these think tanks to one side, we do actually see confirmation between that sort of contact between a serving a prominent Western politician and these proscribed organizations. So not surprising. No, not surprising, really. And under the surface, we can imagine all sorts of links making a quite coherent policy towards all this, in fact, and linking back into history. And of course, this is where your article, I think, is so important that you show that this way of thinking is nothing new. It's been going on for a long time and uh, in many different places. And one of the first places that you go to in your discussion here is Germany. And you start by looking at Heinrich Himmler giving a 1944 speech where he is basically saying that Islam is ideal. If you're going to be a soldier, well, why not be an Islamist? And you also go back beyond that to Kaiser Wilhelm's views of Muslims as good for guerrilla warfare. So do you want to tell us about Germany's cultivation of Islam, Islamism, for the purposes of war? And I'm afraid the rest of that interview with Adyinka Mackinday will have to wait until next week because my time for editing this week has simply come to an end. I wish it were not so, but it is. So the next part, as I say, looking into some of the history of this phenomenon will be next week, not a fortnight from now. But as I always have to say, all being well. 
So our next interview, that is after next week's second half, will be rather unusual for TMR. Um, I'm not quite sure how that's going to go, actually, although I am looking forward to it very much in a strange kind of way. We're going to be talking to the leader of the UK political party, the Monster Raving Looney Party, to a man who goes by the name of Alan Howling Lord Hope, who is the current leader of the official Monster Raving Looney Party here in the UK. And we're having a conversation on the history, aims and achievements of the UK's most most well-known unconventional political party. And I'll just read here, to whet your appetite about this, I'll just read here from what I've written on the schedule page. In 1999, following the death of the party's founder, Screaming Lord Such, who had led the party through previous incarnations, um, such as National Teenage Party, Go to Blazes Party, and finally the official Monster Raving Looney Party, the members voted for its new leader, choosing jointly a cat called Katmandu and his owner, Alan Howling Lord Hope, Although Katmandu died in 2002 and now serves as one of the party's spiritual leaders, Howling Lord proudly continues as the UK's longest-serving party leader. So, very much looking forward to that. I'm sure it'll be a very entertaining conversation, but also perhaps we'll learn something about the aims and, I say, the history of that unconventional party. Thereafter, we'll be having a chat with Andy and Mel of the fantastic Christian indie rock band Dissident Prophet, who've been on this show a couple of times before, and um, we'll be playing tracks from their new album, Strange Times. Then, hopefully, though it's not finalised yet, another unusual interview with the hosts of Uncle the Podcast. Uncle and his nephew-in-law, Aaron Franz, who some of you may know from the Trans Resistor Radio and Themes and Memes podcasts. Uncle the Podcast, however, is uh, rather difficult to define. I think it's very enjoyable, and I hope you check it out for yourselves. Um, So I'm just going to quote from their About page, because I say it's rather difficult to describe what it is about. Quote, Uncle is the star of the show, originally from New York City. He has lived many places throughout the years and now resides in Orange, California. Uh, This podcast is a fun way for Uncle to cut loose and talk about anything and everything. In addition to presenting an infinite amount of topics, this podcast also features audio clips taken from Uncle's daily life. Get to know Uncle by listening today. So maybe you're none the wiser, but uh, it is very amusing and I'm very, very much looking forward to speaking to the hosts of Uncle the Podcast. So that's it for today. Part two, as I say, next week of the interview with Adi Inka Mackenday. And after that, some unusual, but hopefully entertaining and you never know, possibly enlightening shows with various people to follow. You have been listening to me, Julian Charles of the MindRenewed.com. And I very much look forward to speaking to you in the near future. <laughs>